Welcome to the American Planning Association podcast. This episode continues our series that takes a look at the people behind the plans, showcasing the work, life, and stories of planners from all across the profession. I'm your host, Courtney Kashima, founder and principal at Muse Community Design, a planning and public engagement studio in Chicago, Illinois. I'm also a longtime member of the American Planning Association. Our guest today is Lynn Ross, AICP, founder of Spirit for Change Consulting, LLC. I'm thrilled to get the chance to sit down and talk with Lynn. In my opinion, Lynn's work exemplifies what planning should be all about, mission-driven, evidence-based, equity-minded, and impactful. Lynn, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Courtney. I'm really excited to be here. Now, you discovered urban planning in the middle of Iowa. Tell us. (laughs) I did. Tell us about that experience. So, you know, I grew up outside of Chicago in a place called Joliet, Illinois, um, which some people may know from Prison Break or Blues Brothers. uh, But when I was growing up there, um, you know, Joliet had sort of fallen on hard times. So I grew up in a city that was very working class, uh, that had been quite prosperous at one time, but was really struggling economically. Downtown was sort of depressed. Um, and so growing up, I was really looking, looking at the city that was evolving and changing and, and somewhat struggling. So all of that sort of played in my mind about what I wanted to do or what role I might play uh, in my own community as I grew up. But I did not know about urban planning. I don't have any planners or urbanists really in my family. Um, but I do have a dad who loves cities. Uh, and so one of the things that we used to do on school breaks is actually take the train from downtown Joliet into the city of Chicago. And so, again, I got to see this sort of changing landscape, and it really got me thinking about who makes decisions about cities, why a place looks the way that it looks. And so by the time I was ready to go to college, I thought, well, you know, architecture might be kind of close to all of these things that I'm interested in. It wasn't quite the thing, but it was close enough. Uh, and so cut to my orientation uh, at Iowa State College of Design. Um, they have all of the, the incoming freshmen together, and they have a representative from each of the programs sort of stand up and say a few words about that program. And the last speaker stood up. Uh, his name was Alan Jensen. He was a professor there at the time. And he said, hey, I'm from the Department of uh, City and Regional Planning. I know none of you uh, have signed up uh, to have planning as your major, but I'm going to tell you about the greatest program that you're missing. And I don't remember, honestly, what he said after that, but I do know that I leaned over to my dad in the middle of that speech and said, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. It's not architecture. It's not political science. It's planning. Um, and my dad, in his wisdom, said, hold your horses. <laughs> we just spent all this time looking at architecture schools. Why don't you just take a planning course as an elective uh, your first semester, see if you really like it, and then you can switch. And, of course, long story short, I absolutely fell in love with it, changed my major at the end of that first semester, um, and the rest is history. Um, but, you know, again, I didn't know about planning as a kid. I think if I had been exposed to it at an earlier age, as a profession, I think I probably would have uh, would have selected it sort of right from the start. But I got very lucky, frankly, in going to Iowa State and that they had a planning program at the undergraduate level. Um, so I was able to find it when I was 18, which is pretty cool. Definitely. And I think your discovery uh, story resonates with a lot of planners 
Why do you think we struggle to get it on people's radars? I think planning is, and this is a good and bad thing, uh, but I think planning is a really broad field, um, and it can be really difficult to define what is planning and what is a planner. Uh, planners can, can be a lot of things. I've experienced that in my own career. Um, some people might not think of me as a planner. I always remind them uh, that I am one, but they think of me as someone who works on housing policy or just public policy generally, and I always remind them, no, I'm actually a planner, and that's the perspective that I'm bringing to it. And so I think we struggle sometimes in just defining what the field is, what planners do, um, what our educational and professional development needs are, um, and I think also struggle just sort of meeting people early enough. Lots of folks find planning at the graduate school level, um, but I think there's a way to talk about um, cities uh, and planning and the various roles you can play, you know, even with kids. And I know there are some programs that are out there that do that, but I think we could do a lot more of that um, and help folks understand that there are a number of, of professions, including planning, um, uh, that you can explore. Uh, if, if cities get you excited, uh, there's a way that you can do that for your job. Yeah, I definitely feel like sometimes there are efforts that should be led by planners but are ceded to other professionals. And sometimes planners claim so many things to be planning that it gets quite diluted. Have you experienced something similar? Sure. I, I mean, I, I think that happens all the time. You pick up any um, any sort of urban urbanism-focused magazine or read a blog, uh, and there's something going on, and it's either planners taking full credit for it or uh, someone else who's sort of uh, urbanism-adjacent uh, taking credit for it. And again, I think that goes back to the field is so broad. I also think we don't necessarily do uh, a great job, we planners, um, of communicating um our value add and what we're working on and how we're partnered because planners generally don't do things and really shouldn't do things on their own. We're doing it in collaboration with community, uh, with other stakeholders. And so sometimes I think uh, we actually don't toot toot our horns enough about what we're doing and what our role in it was. And we could definitely do a better job of that as as a field. I think it's fair to describe planning as a big tent field topically, but there are other ways where the tent isn't big enough, and I'm thinking about representation of the communities we serve. I'm thinking of inclusiveness, diversity, equity. In your experience as an African-American woman, what do you find happening out there? Uh, So I would love to tell you a story about how it's so much better (laughs) than it was uh, when I was first coming into the field, but I really feel like we are stagnating. Um, so, you know, I've been a practicing planner for about 17 years. Um, in addition to my degree in planning from Iowa State, I also went through planning school uh, for a master's at Cornell. So I've been through two planning programs, uh, worked in a bunch of different cities, uh, had a bunch of different roles, and I still walk into rooms uh, where I am the only or one of few people of color. Uh, where I am the only or one of few women. Um, this is less true now than it was earlier in my career, but I still often walk into the room where I am the youngest person there significantly. Um, I, I don't think that speaks well to a field that is about community. 
you can look at the demographics. Our communities are changing dramatically, and our field is not. Um, so we really have to do better at broadening who we are reaching, not only for a pipeline, right, to get people into the field, but I think also really doing some additional thoughtful care about how we are cultivating folks who are already in. What are the leadership opportunities that we're providing in our organizations? What are the professional development opportunities that we are providing uh, to have real conversations about what it means uh, to have equity and inclusiveness at the core of your work? Um, it can't be just having one person of color uh, or, you know, thinking even more broadly about diversity, just, you know, someone who is different. Um, it can't just be having that one person in the room or at the table. Uh, we really have to fundamentally think about uh, whether or not we're really living up to the core values of planning. For me, equity and inclusiveness are, is a core value. It's, it's something that we should be incorporating into everything. It shouldn't be a side conversation or an extra. It should be infused into all that we do. Uh, and I feel like as a field, I, do, I really do feel like we are stagnating in that space. Um, and to use some real leadership at sort of all levels um, to really push the needle on that. And it's obviously a very complicated issue. I mean, I, I am committed to doing better personally and professionally in this regard, but even I find it difficult. And sometimes it's a matter of uh, struggling with the right words or the right venue or feeling like we don't talk about, you know, it's impolite, um, or there's insecurities, and you and I have had some really great conversations, um, and I appreciate the honesty and the candor, because I agree that this is a core value of planning. I wonder if you have any advice for people, either uh, anyone who's in a position to help on this matter, about... <laughs> how to even get started or overcome some of those um, overcome some of those reservations? I think you have to come, and, and when I say, you know, the we here really is everybody. Like this, is, this actually isn't just on white people. This is on all of us. It's, it's all of our field, uh, and we are all working um, in, in different types of communities, different types of organizations. So we actually all have a responsibility to, to uh, go deeper on this issue to advance this issue. Um, that said, it sometimes feels like, uh, you know, as the African-American or the female in the room, it sometimes feels like I'm really carrying a lot of that water forward. Uh, so I'd be happy to sort of share the weight of that uh, a little more frequently. But I do feel a personal responsibility to advance the issues um, as well. You know, I think, to your point, Part of the reason that, you know, maybe we stagnated or, or we, we haven't made it as many advances um, in our profession is that it is complex. It is hard. It's actually really uncomfortable for a lot of folks. And if we could all just start by just acknowledging that, uh, this is hard. It's sticky. It's difficult. There are not going to be any easy answers, and there's not going to be an answer. Uh, there will be answers. Um, we have to start from just, I think, a really honest place of dialogue, but also one that I think is solutions-focused, um, because I do think there there can be solutions um, if we work together uh, and really decide that this is, in fact, a core value, and how can we, uh, you know, 
get to the point where we really feel like we are working to our core values. What does that look like? What does that look like when we're putting together the National Planning Conference? What does that look like when we are thinking about new board members? Um, we're just new members, period, uh, in our chapters or on a task force that we're, that we're putting together. What does that look like in our personal practice as, as a planner? So, you know, I think we have some spaces in our field and, you know, specifically I'm thinking of APA as an organization where some of those conversations are happening, but I, I think we need more of those spaces and, and, and more, uh, more ability to have really candid conversation about where we're struggling and what we can do collectively to move this forward. Because the reality is if we if we don't really start doing that in a really concrete way, our field is going to just continue to become sort of more diluted, right? People are not going to see a value in being a planner because they're going to not see people who look like them who are planners uh, who or who espouse their values um, who call themselves planners. So if we believe... Uh, that our field has value, that it means something to say that you're a planner, um, then I think it really is on us uh, to more clearly espouse what our values are um, as a planner and not just give it lip service, but, you know, actually take actions uh, that are visible to ourselves but also to a broader audience um, that really get at those issues. But I, I really do think it has to start from a place of, uh, just folks coming together as individuals and acknowledging this is hard, it's going to be hard, people are going to be uncomfortable, um, but um, that is uh, sort of a worthy sacrifice to make if it helps advance better work, better service to our communities, um, and I think a more diverse and inclusive membership broadly in this field. Would you agree that there's also some small steps that folks can take that they might not even be thinking of. Um, I'm frequently, for example, in charge of a program committee or a conference helping to shape um, education for professionals. And I've committed to diversifying our speakers, challenging myself and my colleagues to not go to perhaps the usual suspects, but think about those voices, those faces, those stories um, that can help in this regard. That's a teeny tiny thing, but it I found it to be pretty impactful. I was especially motivated when someone told me on the entire topic of, of retail, there weren't any women in the Chicago area who could speak on this topic. And <laughs> ever since mm-hmm. then, um, I, I have made it my mission to diversify things where I can and Sure enough, the following year we had an an all-women panel. And it wasn't something we needed to say, hey, come to the all-women retail panel. We simply found four fantastic speakers who were qualified and experienced in the field, and they happened to be women. So do you have other examples of sort of the small moves people can make uh, if if they want to commit themselves to this? Yeah, so I actually wouldn't classify that as a small move. Um, I think it's actually a really big deal um, to think about uh, speakers, if, you know, if you're responsible for a program or something like that. I think that's a big deal. Who gets on stage really matters because, uh, you know, when you're invited to speak and you're given that platform, that is an endorsement um, of sorts of your work, of your expertise. And so when you go to a program and, again, you don't see – uh, any people of color or any people of, of your gender or any people, uh, you know, with a title similar to yours, 
that says something to you, and it's probably not something that the organizers really want uh, stated. Um, so I think it's actually a big thing. So, you know, I encourage people, because lots of us are out there putting together uh, programs, large and small, uh, to really think about that. I also think the same thing is true when you're thinking about how you get your job announcements out. I often hear folks saying things like, oh, we can't find um, any good candidates of color or we're having trouble connecting. And, you know, I sort of say back to them, you know, you didn't send me that position description and ask me to share it with my network. There were really easy things. Um, we have all sorts of tools. We have email. We have Facebook. We have, you know, all sorts of social media that make it that much easier uh, to reach a broader audience. And also just sort of the basics of picking up the phone um, in your own network and saying, I really want uh, this internship or this position description or I've got a board uh, seat that's available, I really want to pick your brain and get some different folks in the mix for consideration. That is a fairly easy thing to do. It may seem small, but actually the impact of it is huge. Good reminder. Thank you. I want to switch gears for a minute. I really appreciate hearing about your experience and some of your aspirations for the field, but I want to switch gears to some of your work. You've held leadership positions at the American Planning Association, National Housing Conference, Urban Land Institute, and the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. What are some of the accomplishments at those organizations of which you are most proud? Wow, that's a tough question. Um, you know, I've had I've had just so many great opportunities to do what I think is some pretty interesting work. Um, but I think when I look across all of those positions. I tend to get the most satisfaction to be the most proud when I know that I have helped to create and share a resource that is really going to help somebody make a more informed decision. Um, I think that's sort of been um, the through line uh, in throughout my career. Is I, I really, even though I've sat at a national seat, I have really wanted to connect uh, with state and local leaders and help them make more informed choices. So, um, you know, sometimes that's taken the form of research. So I'm thinking about some work I did when I was leading the Terwilliger Center at the Urban Land Institute. Uh, we did a project in partnership with uh, enterprise community partners called Bending the Cost Curve, where we really looked at uh, the causes of why it's so expensive to develop affordable rental housing. So this was, you know, a question people were asking, but research really hadn't been done on it at that point. So it was really um, satisfying to help create um, what we thought would be one report, but ended up being two, that first identified what those challenges were, but then started to get to solutions. Because I, I also really like uh, putting things together that help people think about um, how to solve their problem, not just sort of identifying what the problem is. Um, I'm also thinking about times, you know, we talked about events. Um, I've had the opportunity to create lots of events, um, but I really find a lot of power uh, in creating those sort of uh, in-person uh, learning opportunities. So when I was with the National Housing Conference and then also at the Terwilliger Center, I was able to create um, new conferences. So there's a solutions conference that still happens with NHC. Uh, there's a housing opportunity conference that is still happening with the Terwilliger Center um, that really focused on bringing together uh, state, local, and national leaders uh, in the housing affordability space. And it's so rewarding to see folks, uh, that diverse group of folks, come together for a couple of days 
really dig in, share information, um, and then maintain those connections, and you start to see um, the policy change in those communities. So that's really satisfying. Um, and then at HUD, I did a couple of things that that really stand out. Um, one was that I helped create an initiative that actually APA is still helping to carry on uh, called the Prosperity Playbook. Um, this was uh, a special initiative uh, uh, led by Secretary Castro, um, working with mayors and, and looking, again, at challenges but also solutions regionally for advancing prosperity, for advancing housing affordability. And so it was really rewarding at the end of my tenure to help create that initiative and then really great to see that work continue uh, with APA and other partners. And then the, the other thing I would mention is that while at HUD, I had the opportunity to build on uh, the work I'd done at the Terwilliger Center with that bending the cost curve report and put together a day-long symposium on rental housing affordability, uh, which I was excited about. But then, uh, you know, we got word that Vice President Biden was interested in coming. So he made his first and only visit uh, to HUD um, to give a keynote um, at this at this symposium. And so it was really exciting to... Um, put on a program that I was already really excited about, but have that additional light shown uh, on this topic by having the vice president come and sort of say, you know what, rental housing affordability is really important. Um, that was really a highlight of, of my time there. I bet. Are there any examples you can share of a community who took up the prosperity playbook and implemented either at the local or regional scale? So Playbook worked in in a few ways. So there was a, a toolkit, an online toolkit that was created. So I hope that lots of communities are out there using that. It's, it's uh, still available, has great case studies. Uh, but the way that we launched Playbook was with a listening tour to five communities. Um, so we went to Kansas City, to Denver, uh, to San Francisco, uh, to Minneapolis, St. Paul, and to Atlanta. Uh, and we worked not only with the mayors uh, in sort of the, the major city there, but also uh, the mayors in the suburban regions um, to have to really hear from them about you know what was working across their region, where they were still facing challenges, um, and then what HUD could do outside of new money uh, and sort of new programs. What HUD could do to help advance those issues. And so this work again continued after after I departed, uh, but during the time I was there. You know, we worked really closely with those five regions uh, on work plans on a set of issues that, that they identified where we could help advance. So many of them uh, were working uh, to meet their obligations for affirmatively furthering their housing. Um, others were working on uh, RAD-related uh, projects, the rental assistance demonstration. Uh, and so we were able to sort of help them advance make connections to, to other partners in their region or other national partners. Um, so that was really um, a rewarding way to do the work where we weren't just sort of rolling something out uh, nationally, but in fact started um, in community uh, and then lifted work up from there. I wonder if you could share with us some of the limitations of working in big organizations uh, that we were just discussing, and if it's relevant, maybe um, what's different about working for yourself. Yeah, um, this is a great question. So I think that big organizations, the limitations can can be also some opportunities, right? So when you sit 
nationally or in the case of ULI, globally, um, it can be limiting because you aren't necessarily on the ground in the same way that a local organization or a particular uh, planner uh, would be. So you really have to work to not only maintain those connections, uh, whether it's members or staff you have on the ground, um, but you have to really cultivate those relationships because in order for you to be effective from headquarters, you've got to know what's happening on the ground. I could produce you know, really cool research, but what's the point if it's not helping somebody solve a problem or advance a, a conversation uh, that's happening in a community? Um, so I think that that can be a real limitation. The opportunity, however, when you sit at that level is that you get to see trends um, as they're emerging. Um, you can often make connections. You know, I think back to my really early days at APA, when I worked um, as part of the planning advisory service, it was really fun to talk to planners every day from across the country and to be able to connect them not only to research or sample ordinances, but to say, hey, you know, you're thinking about inclusionary zoning. You know, I talked to a planner six months ago that was just putting the finishing touches on their ordinance. Let me connect the two of you uh, directly to talk about this. So, that's something that, you know, obviously isn't impossible to do um, from other levels, but I think it's one of the, the benefits of, of working nationally. But again, um, you know, I think it can be a limitation if you aren't really making sure um, that you're maintaining connections, uh, again, with your staff, your members, whoever it is you have out in the field, really important to have that relationship. Um, and in terms of what's different about working for myself, um, I feel, you know, coming into a consultancy uh, at this point in my career, I've really developed a pretty thorough skill set on what it takes to build things. Um, so I've spent my career building um, teams and policies and um, agendas and campaigns um, that I really believe in, but on behalf of other people, um, other organizations, other funders. And so now I'm able to take... Um, all of those skills and use them um, in crafting my own portfolio, uh, which is great. So I feel I feel capable in that sense. It's it's certainly different to to work solo. I've worked um, with pretty big teams. I've managed um, pretty big teams. So um, it is a change of pace and an adjustment, but a good one um, to be working uh, for myself and by myself. One thing that's always impressed me about your career arc is your ability to go deep into an issue or topic when needed, but then come back and connect that to other issues. Affordable housing is is the biggest one. I know um, mm-hmm. that's a passion of yours, and you've been able to connect housing affordability to a wide range of issues. So is that ability to go deep and come back out, is that um, circumstantial or has it been intentional? It's been intentional, and for me, I think it, it's been core to how I view my work as a planner. Um, so, you know, I was interested in housing affordability, you know, uh, probably from, like, the second course I took in planning uh, as an undergraduate. Um, and so it was always something that I always wanted to know more about. Uh, if there was a housing section uh, in the study we were doing, you know, I wanted to be the one to research that. So it's, it's been a long-term interest of mine. Um, but really, as I started working professionally, it became really clear to me uh, that 
housing was very deeply connected um, to a whole range of other issues in the community, to education, to health, to economic mobility, to transportation, you name it. And so as a planner, I really felt especially well-suited to understand those connections, um, start to understand who the audiences were um, that I needed to better understand myself and reach out to uh, in order to move that work forward. So I had a a lot of opportunities uh, when I was at the National Housing Conference to really start to hone in on that work. And, in fact, one of the reasons that they hired me um, for that job is because I was a planner, right? So these, this was sort of a, um, a well-known housing organization. They had a bunch of housers on staff. And as they were creating a brand-new state and local program, uh, they hired a planner uh, to come and set that program up. And I think that was very intentional on their part because they wanted somebody uh, who could go very deep um, on the housing issues but also who could see these broader connections um, to a larger set of community issues and communicate about those connections really effectively. My first job as a baby planner was in Allen County, Indiana, which is where Fort Wayne is, and that's the first time I heard about the Knight Foundation. You've been doing some really interesting work with them recently. Can you share a little bit about that with us? Yeah, uh, so Knight Foundation, uh, for folks who don't know, is, is uh, based here in Miami, and I am working with them on a great initiative called Reimagining the Civic Commons. So this is a national initiative, uh, really a three-year demonstration. It, it kicked off last September, and it's operating in five places, uh, Akron, Ohio, Chicago, Detroit, Memphis, and Philadelphia. And what we're exploring with this work is how we can connect a set of civic assets, so your libraries, your parks, open spaces, trails, community centers, et cetera. Can we connect these assets in a way, transform them in a way that truly connects to neighborhoods and the diverse residents um, that surround these, these, these assets? Um, there are four outcomes that we're really hoping to achieve with this work. Civic engagement, so there we're looking at things like, you know, are we increasing the levels of trust? Um, Is there new advocacy for the commons? Is there increased stewardship for the commons? Um, We're looking at environmental sustainability. So, you know, do folks have just increased access to nature? We now know how beneficial nature uh, is for folks, especially folks who are living in cities. Um, So are we increasing that access? Do people feel like their ability to walk and bike safely uh, in their neighborhood? has been increased. We're looking uh, for socioeconomic mixing. So is there income mixing uh, in these neighborhoods and the, the, in the neighborhoods surrounding the commons? Are we, are we sort of penetrating uh, those neighborhoods in a way where folks are really, you know, with gentrification as a concern, but are folks really feeling like um, this neighborhood is for them and that these civic assets are for them? Um, and then finally, we're looking at value creation. So we know that improving these assets is going to change uh, their real estate value. But we want to keep an eye on affordability, not only residential, but of commercial spaces. So can local businesses, the mom-and-pop shops, um, remain because they are part of the fabric of these neighborhoods? And then perceptions of safety are also part of that. Um, so this work is 
um, funded nationally. So Knight is one of the funders, uh, but we're joined by the JPB Foundation, the Kresge Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, and there are a number of other local funders um, in each of the five cities I mentioned. Um, and while this work is funded nationally and it's a national demonstration, the, the teams are local. Um, so, and planners are very involved. So in Detroit, for example, uh, the team there is working uh, in the Fitzgerald neighborhood and it's led by the planning department. So Maurice Cox, who I know folks are familiar with, um, is leading, uh, leading that team uh, uh, to advance that work. In Chicago, um, it's artist and developer Fiesta Gates, who actually uh, has a planning background, uh, came from the same uh, Iowa planning program that I did, believe it or not. Um, so it's a really interesting piece of work. Equity and inclusiveness are at the core of it. I'd really encourage folks uh, who are interested in thinking about their public spaces in a different way uh, to check out uh, the blog. Uh, that blog is being populated by the team, so you're hearing directly from folks on the ground about what's going on and uh, how they're thinking um, about this work that's evolving. So I'd really encourage folks to to look into that, but it's, it's a really fun initiative. It's really sort of using, for me, um, all of my skills as a planner to, you know, as you said, sort of go deep on a set of issues, but also really see those connections, uh, both within each of these cities, but across the five cities as well. Now, some of those core issues you mentioned are difficult to quantify. How okay. are you guys, how are you guys measuring? So we have uh, a very extensive uh, evaluation component of this. So there are, across those four areas that I mentioned, there are something uh, like 60 metrics, specific metrics that we're, that we're looking at. Um, so there uh, is evaluation happening nationally across uh, all the cities, but also locally. So we're taking a lot of local intelligence. Um, you know, our goal here is for transformation. Are we necessarily going to see transformation at the end of three years? I don't know, but I do think that we'll have some early indicators of it. But evaluation is key. Um, you know, that's something with my background that is especially important um, to support evidence-based policymaking. Is you've got to measure, and you don't get what you don't measure. Um, so there, you know, the metrics are pretty extensive. And again, I'd encourage folks to check out. Um, the website, uh, civiccommons.us, uh, where we talk about uh, the measurement piece and what we're looking for. Definitely sounds like one to watch. Yes, definitely. So I feel like you've packed in a lifetime of work into less than 20 years. I'm really excited <laughs> to see what comes next from you. Me um, too. <laughs> in general, I was wondering if you could share which areas of planning you feel like we've really moved the needle? What's going right? What inspires you right now? I think what's inspiring me right now, where I think planners have, have played and continue to play a really key role, is this seemingly broader understanding of the importance of community connection, walkability, bikeability, the importance of real placemaking. Um, you know, I feel like that's something that's been talked about, um, written about extensively, you know, in planning magazine and in journals and, you know, talked about at the conferences and what have you. But I, I, I feel like we're really actually seeing it um, in a really great diversity of places. And so that's actually really exciting. I travel a lot uh, for my work. I have traveled um, 
actually for all of my jobs. And so, you know, just seeing sort of the changing landscape, the changing uh, nature of downtowns uh, or commercial corridors, um, how those have evolved into really uh, places that you want to spend time, um, you know, sticky streets, places that you want to spend some real time on, um, and knowing that planners have played a role, you know, complete streets, you know, planners have played a huge role, um, you've played a huge role um, in moving um, that workforce. So that that's really exciting um, because when you've got something real uh, that other folks can experience and walk around in, I think that that helps um, a broader audience understand the value of what planners do, the conversations that we're hosting. You know, this is why we want you to come to that meeting about our comprehensive plan. This is why the zoning code matters. Because when we do it right, it can help create and sustain these places that we all enjoy. Um, so that's been that's been great uh, to see. Obviously, still lots of work uh, to do on that front. But I, I do feel like we've had a change um, and are starting to see uh, the fruits of that labor. Yeah, I'm curious, though, which areas do you see as top priority for where there's more work to be done? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a pretty long list. Uh, you know, fundamentally, I think the communities that, that we all live and work in are dynamic places. And so, you know, as planners, we have to be dynamic and changing, too. Um, and we, we have to stay current. Um, I think if there were, you know, let's say three issues that sort of keep me up at night, for our field, um, uh, number one would definitely be, you know, developing a, a better set of tools and policies and practices to address growing income inequality and persistent segregation in our cities. Uh, we have, and I would throw gentrification in that in that uh, that soup as well. Uh, we have got to do uh, significantly better on that, and it's, and these are tough issues. Um, but I just that's one where I really feel like we have. Uh, much more work to do. Um, a second issue for me um, that I'm, you know, trying to get my own intelligence level up on is I'm really interested in, you know, the role of technology, right? So what does artificial intelligence, what do autonomous vehicles, what does that mean for us as planners um, and our communities, not just the physical form of our cities. I feel like there's a lot of conversation about that. Um, but I'm also really wondering about what it means for civic engagement. Um, you know, if we're all sort of sitting in autonomous vehicles going different places, you know, what does that mean for our ability for people to gather? That's why work like the Civic Commons is really meaningful to me right now, is really thinking about how we still bring people together. So technology... Um, I just think it's something, you know, planners are usually on top of, uh, but I feel like when it comes to some of these next technological changes that are really burgeoning or happening now, I feel like we have to get past sort of the whiz-bang of it and really think about what it means for the way we do our work, the way our community members um, will want and need to engage and what the new expectations would be. And then a third area I would uh, throw out there is sort of the continuing need for climate adaptation um, and planning for resilience. Um, you know, I feel like not that long ago those topics were sort of uh, an area of specialization. You know, you needed to be aware of it, but other people were going to do it. It's such a pressing issue in communities of all shapes and sizes. For me, it's become even more pressing now that I live um, a 15-minute walk from the ocean uh, in Miami Beach. I'm confronted with it every day. Um, 
I feel like that's something that really needs to be core to the planner's toolkit. So it's not something for other people to do. It's not a specialization. Um, it's something that we're all going to be grappling with uh, in different ways at different times. Um, and it really seems to me like it needs to be really core uh, to the way we understand what our work is. Um, so that's three, and I guess I would just give uh, use my prerogative and give a fourth, which is just to highlight you know what I said earlier in the program, which is about increasing diversity and inclusiveness in this field. Um, I really think that that is something we have significantly more work to do on um, individually and collectively as a profession, um, and it's it's something I think about a lot. Yeah, I don't know if someone would accuse me of veering into territorialism, but whenever there's an issue I'm concerned about, it usually boils down to a disconnect between individual decision-making and impacts on the greater good. And I believe planners have a special responsibility, a special training, a special set of skills um, to address these, whether it's what's the world going to be like without hardware stores, libraries, and post office, you know, or um, these other issues like the integration of technology, increased inequality. So I really appreciate it. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Sorry to interrupt you, but you just, you reminded me of a keynote speech that Ron Sims, um, the former former Deputy Secretary for HUD gave at the APA conference uh, maybe two or three years ago. Um, And he said, and I'm going to paraphrase, you know, that planners in particular, you know, are really charged not only with the present, but leading into the future. And I think that, I think you just, you know, you really hit on that sentiment. Um, We, you know, we do have, uh, that's our value add, right? We have a special set of skills that is about not only looking short-term, but looking long-term and helping to lead conversations um, and lead processes that help move communities, hopefully uh, more informed uh, towards whatever that future is going to be. that's our job. That's our role. Well, I'm certainly going to keep asserting that. I know you're a partner in that work. I really appreciate your time today sharing your candid thoughts, your experience, and your outlook for the future. Lynn, I want to thank you for speaking with us today. Thank you. I, this was so much fun, and I'm so glad that you are hosting this podcast series. It's really a treat um, to listen to it and now to participate in it. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the American Planning Association podcast. For more information and to hear past episodes, visit planning.org slash podcast. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Have an idea for a podcast? Send them to podcast at planning.org.